It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. The topic of shame is something that we have covered at length here in previous episodes of This Might Get Uncomfortable. We have a really phenomenal episode with a gentleman named Nick Jaworski, who has a podcast called Shame Rules. And he has some really alternative perspectives on the nature and the mechanics of shame, not just psychologically, but also in terms of our culture and our societal construct. And purports that there may even be some benefits to shame, depending on how it's utilized in which context. So we encourage you, dear dear listener, dear watcher, if you're on YouTube enjoying this episode, to check that out. We will link to that in the show notes at wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And also, Whitney, you know, one of our last time I checked our blog stats, which was a while ago, one of our most popular blog posts is also dealing with shame. This was a blog post that we released. All the way back on April 22nd, 2019, it was one of our first blog posts at Wellevator.com. And the title of the blog is Our Collective Addiction to Shame. I'm really proud of this. I feel like it's a really good sort of collective scope about collective evolution. Does shame even really hold any sort of benefit in today's society. It's kind of the counter perspective to Nick's perspective. So if you do listen to Nick's episode, be sure to check out this blog post at our website, Our Collective Addiction to Shame. All of that is to say, Whitney and I trade texts about a lot of things. You're probably the person... I mean, if I look back at our text thread, it's a pretty diverse and myriad amount of subjects we text each other back and forth. I think a week or two ago, you texted me and said, oh, we got to watch this. There's a uh, Netflix documentary called 15 Minutes of Shame that you told me about. We've both taken a watch and we want to talk and dive into their perspectives on shame. This was produced by Monica Lewinsky, co-produced by Monica Lewinsky. And I walked away from it, Whitney, with a lot of feelings. I know you have watched a significant portion of it and I want to pass the ball back to you and just see how you... Because you're more fresh with it than I am. I think I'm like five or six days after. I'm curious emotionally and mentally how you feel having it sort of fresh in your brain. Well, one thing I would like to do and I was hoping to do before this was to go back and watch the beginning because the first five minutes of that documentary, I was like, whoa. And then the reason I haven't finished it yet is that then it got a little less whoa. (laughs) And I was like, I kind of have to watch this. I committed to watching it for the podcast. But then about halfway through, it got whoa again. So it's a little bit of a journey. There's a show about Monica Lewinsky right now called Impeachment, I think. And it's like American something story. It's by the guy that did Glee and Ryan Murphy. And anyways, I've been watching that on it's on FX. And so I'm like deep into the Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton story. And it's so good. Just like to watch it be acted out. The actors are awesome. And it's just really, really well done. And so I've been thinking a lot about that Monica Lewinsky time because I remember it, but very like vaguely. 
it's so hard when something historical happens like that. And the same is kind of true with like 9-11. It's like, I don't remember what I witnessed at the time it was happening versus like what I witnessed by people talking about it. So the Bill Clinton, you know, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. I don't know if I saw that live on TV. My parents remember that. And I think they watched it live. So it's possible I did, but like, it's also possible that I didn't really care. Right. Anyways, it's really interesting to look at it through the lens of shame. And one thing I do distinctly remember is when Monica Lewinsky was on Saturday Night Live, I was at Saturday Night Live because I was on a school trip and they took us to walk through like tour and she was the guest that day. And we got to see her rehearse a scene that she did with that actor, Tim Meadows. Is that his last name? Jason? Yeah. Was no, the it actually called? No, the, the, no the sorry. Ladies the ladies man. man. Yes. Ladies that's man. what it was. So I saw them re- practicing that skit, rehearsing. We were like, watch that it, literally in real time on the Saturday Night Live stage. And I remember being so fascinated by Monica Lewinsky. And I was like, oh my gosh. Like, you know, and she, I remember when she went on SNL, I think it was like her taking ownership and like no longer being like a victim of shame, but like, I'm going to make the most of this. And I actually think that's really amazing. I also remember last year, she was in a documentary about the Clintons. And I remember just feeling like, wow, like I'm so deeply fascinated with this story. And she says in 15 Minutes of Shame how she was one of the first big, if not the first examples of shame in the digital age. Because what year, that must have been what, 2000 maybe that that happened? No, no, no. This was 98, I believe. So this was like three years after the... Yeah. The SNL skit was either 99 or 2000, but yeah, 98. So where the internet stood in 1998 was not nearly what it is today. We didn't really have social media. I remember like getting really into like maybe AOL back then. Like that was probably like the closest. So like, I think at that time people were getting into email and doing chat rooms and like maybe doing some research online. But like, it's so fascinating that that coincided with everything that happened with her. And watching this reenactment and that narrative version of the impeachment is so fascinating because it's being acted out. And I think she's involved with that impeachment show as well. And just to like see as much in a narrative form of that perspective of what she went through is so interesting because it's like they do such a great job of painting the story of a young woman who was enamored with an older, powerful man and seemed to enjoy that relationship, but didn't really understand the consequences of it and certainly did not seem to even think it was a possibility that the entire world would find out, you know, like that to me is part of what's really interesting about both of these pieces is like the stories of people doing things that are either truly innocent and somehow they get twisted around into shame or, you know, I'm sure Monica Lewinsky 
was well aware that not only was she having an affair with somebody who was married, but like was doing something that a president would not look good on him. But what's also interesting, actually, is I didn't realize probably because of my youth, I didn't realize how many like relationships Bill Clinton had. Like, I want to look back into the history of it because apparently this thing with Monica Lewinsky was like, it wasn't just him, her and Paula Jones, right? Like, I didn't realize how deep that story went. And that's part of what makes the shame interesting, Jason, is that Monica was not the only one. And yet, when you think of that time with Bill Clinton, you pretty much only think of Monica Lewinsky. Maybe you'll think of Paula Jones, who's part of that story too. But from what I know, Paula Jones didn't actually do anything with Bill Clinton. I think he just tried to get her to do some sexual things. I don't recall the details of that. My point being is like, why was it that Monica Lewinsky became such a huge target and victim? And if you watch the narrative version, which I imagine closely lines up with all the facts of this, she was used as like a pawn, right? And so that's part of what's super interesting about this 15 Minutes of Shame documentary is like how people were utilized for others' agenda, which I think is a part of shame that we haven't really dug into, Jason. And the subject of that documentary that I'm most excited to talk about with you is is it Schadenfreude? Schadenfreude? Yes. How you pronounce it? Yes, Schadenfreude. That section was like so not triggering, but just like eye-opening, especially the way that that is discussed in this documentary. I was like, wow, this really makes sense. Because basically, when people are taking pleasure from shaming someone... And using it as a way to feel superior and also just to have fun because people love the ridicule. And there's even the phrase in that documentary called the community of losers. She says, which is a loser to me is a really strong term, but I guess depends on how you use it. Like one of the examples is like how people that are competing against each other, like teams, sports teams, for example, like obviously there's a winner and a loser. There's, you can only have one or the other. Right. And she gave the examples of how they will use the pleasure that they get from watching other people fail as motivation to play better. And we also, according to her, this part really like kind of freaks me out. We enjoy seeing people fail more than we enjoy winning ourselves. That hit me so hard. That study she was talking about of soccer fans in Europe when they did that study and they found that their quotient of enjoyment of watching the opposing team miss a goal they got more joy, more satisfaction. Their neurochemical activity was higher than when they saw their team score a goal. That was, to your point, Whitney, that was one of the biggest holy shit moments taken away from this documentary was, wow, they get more pleasure watching the other team fail than watching their team win. That's mind-blowing. It also kind of, not kind of, I think it does really speak to the corollary 
of this forum of public shaming now. And you mentioned Monica Lewinsky being really one of the first figures in the digital age to be subject to very early blog posts, newscasters, people calling her a whore, all of that stuff. But now, I think collectively, especially here in America, we revel in waiting for celebrities to fuck up so we can cancel them. It feels to me like the energy on the internet right now feels like a swarm of vultures waiting to smell blood. And at the first drop of blood, they swoop in and start tearing the flesh off the carcass. Like It really does feel to me that if anybody has a modicum of fame, influence, celebrity, I feel like the bloodthirsty hordes are just waiting to rip them apart. I really feel like people are just so ready for that. And it's sad. It is, but I think part of the reason that this resonated with me, and I'm curious if you feel the same way, Jason, I can relate to that. Like when she said that, I identified it within myself. I do take pleasure, guilty pleasure, from seeing people that I'm envious of fail mess up and get canceled. And a great example is when I see someone on social media who I'm like, gosh, why do they get all this success? Why, how did they get that many followers? All of these things that I wish I had in some ways, when they're canceled, like the first that comes to mind is David Dobrik. It's like, oh, great. Knock him off. Awesome. And all of these other people that we used to see as like the pinnacle of online success, when they are canceled, it's satisfying to me, which is not an easy thing to admit, but I think an important thing to admit. admit. I feel that satisfaction and pleasure. Now, I don't want to partake in calling them out, canceling them, dragging them. Absolutely not. That's just not within my nature. And that gets brought up too about the history of this as well as how we have been doing this for very long, of course, much longer than the internet's been around. And there's like this, I wrote some notes on this part in particular, how this idea of moral outrage and injustice, we want to do the right thing so badly so that we feel like it's our duty to cancel someone, but it's gotten so out of control. And that's like one of the main themes of this documentary is it's just too much and it's too common now. And to your point, Jason, it's like you're just almost every day. I bet you could find an example of someone being called out and canceled. Like it's so common. Remember when it wasn't that common. And that's why Monica Lewinsky is so interesting because I mean, she stood out in that time frame as that example. But now in 2021, there are countless examples of people being canceled and called out for their behavior and dragged and all that. And that's where it's disturbing. But I'm hoping that we reach this point where it's so saturated, like we have to kind of go back to it being less saturated. And from not seeing the second half of the documentary, I don't know our solutions or like... Is there hope for the future? Like, how does it kind of go from there in terms of like where we are now to where maybe we could be? To be honest, it doesn't really propose many solutions. It's sort of, I think, as it goes on, the parts to me that were 
I suppose, equally shocking is that you can be caught in a moment on a video or a photo taken from someone's smartphone at any time, right? I mean, now we have this ability where everyone has the ability to record high-definition video and photos all over the world. And there was this example of the, the gentleman who worked at San Diego Water and Power and was literally stretching his hand like out of the window and looked over at a car. He was just kind of like doing this, right? And they captured him in a pose that is like his hand was like a white power symbol. And someone puts it on Twitter, tags San Diego Water and Power. People are like, cancel this guy. He made a white power gesture in front of a Black Lives Matter rally. This guy was like, I was stretching my hand. He's a Latinx guy. He's Latino. He's like, I'm not a white supremacist. What the hell are you people talking about? This guy, one frame, one photo, not even a video, got passed around the internet because he was making a white power gesture with his hand, which he was not intentionally doing. He got fired from his job. He got absolutely destroyed on social media. And that was never even his intention. I think, you know, of the examples that they gave, which there were many here, Whitney, that was the one that stood out to me as people can take something that's not even real and create an entire secondary narrative around it that has nothing to do with what actually happened. And people do not care. It's like once the lie has enough momentum, the truth gets so buried under the lie and the momentum of all the angry horde canceling someone. That it's like, even if you present the truth, people don't even believe it anymore. I mean, it's kind of how propaganda works. I mean, in a way, in some cases like his case, cancel culture and social media have become sort of part of the propaganda machine where a lie will get spun and people believe it so much that when the guy's like, guys, I'm Mexican, I'm not a white supremacist, I don't even know what this symbol means, I was stretching my hand because I have what he had, like arthritis or something. No one believed him. His job didn't believe him, people on the internet didn't believe him. It was fucking sad, Whitney. Like that one, like broke my heart. I was like... I Mine too. I felt, I felt the same way out of when I was in between that phase of like, not sure if I wanted to keep watching the documentary. That was what I kept thinking of was that man and how much it broke my heart as well, because especially how they framed it, the documentary is so well done that they start off his story with like, yeah, I got this great job and I felt financially set and I was set up for retirement. And, you know, he's just celebrating how much he loved that job. And I was like, huh, where's this going to go? And then like seeing that photo I immediately believed him. But then part of me, Jason, was like, well, like, how do we know if someone's telling the truth? You know, what are the chances that someone's going to catch him holding up his fingers that way? Like, I don't know if I ever hold my fingers up this way, certainly not out a window or like, but then, um, yeah, there was just, it was one of those things where you start to like wonder about it. And I think the way it was positioned that his job it's not that they necessarily didn't believe him. I think that they had to fire him because the mob demanded it. And that's the more disturbing point. The position that they're in as a company, probably motivated out of bad PR, they're like, well, we got to do what's best for the company. So we got to fire this guy, even if he's caught in a bad situation. 
That also reminds me, Jason, and I don't know if the documentary touches upon this, but what's scary is the rise of things like deep fakes and how I think because people take so much pleasure in manipulating others, that deep fakes are going to be a problem. Because right now we depend on evidence to determine whether somebody did or didn't do something. So in that guy's case, the evidence was his him holding his hand out the window. And while he's stating that he was stretching, the evidence is pointing to otherwise. And there's enough detail within that story to make it seem like he was in fact doing what they called him out for. And it's really just his word against the evidence. And I think that's going to continue being a problem. And that really disturbs me. I mean, I have hope. I imagine there's got to be some sort of system developed in order to combat deep fakes. But for those that don't know what that is, right now, the technology exists where it's very easy to take someone's photo or video and put it on top of somebody else's photo or video and make it look like the original person is doing something that the quote actor or model or whatever is doing. So it's commonly used in porn. You can take a picture of a girl and superimpose it on top of another woman in a sexual act and say, look, you know, Whitney's doing porn here and use it as a way to drag someone down. I think that's probably the evolution of this, Jason, because right now, we are still bystanders for the most part. We are witnessing other people be canceled and dragged and called out. And we can participate as bystanders and point our fingers. But the technology is now allowing us to participate in dragging people and manipulate them. And that's a whole different story. It'd be nice to think that morally and ethically, we would not do those things. But given the power that even I feel of the pleasure of watching somebody fall from grace or whatever, is it really that far-fetched? Like, I can't imagine myself creating a deep fake, right? But maybe deep fakes are just the beginning of this type of behavior. And that's sometimes... We have to admit as human beings that we participate in things that we wouldn't really expect ourselves to until we're called out for it, right? So in a way, that documentary is interesting because calling me out for my thoughts that I don't usually publicly share because I feel shame. I I would feel ashamed to admit that I enjoy watching somebody fail, right? But now I'm not ashamed to admit it because the documentary called me out and I was like, well, guilty as charged. Do I like that I do that? No, but that's how my brain currently works. And now I have to actively stop myself. But it also begs this question, Jason. It's kind of like all the different ways in which we maybe participate in guilty pleasures. And nobody knows that we have those guilty pleasures until we say it or act it out. But like, how much of this pleasure can we change within ourselves? Like, is that part of what it means to be a human being to find pleasure in watching people fail or mess up? I wonder, neurologically, chemically, mentally, what is the gap, if you will, or the bridge 
between watching someone on the internet fall down a flight of stairs. There's that favorite video from like three years ago of this guy uh, falling down an escalator and he gets right back up, right? You see him fall and you're like, oh God, oh shit. And then once you realize he's okay, you're like, oh, I can laugh now. That's good. It's like we're hardwired to laugh at people. You know, blooper videos, right? Someone like jumps off the roof onto a trampoline in their yard and totally bites it, right? They land face first on the on the grass. There's a reason, you know, America's funniest home videos exist. There's a reason fuck Jerry exists Instagram. There's a reason we do take pleasure in watching people fuck up, right? But to me, I'm curious again, the jump between, ha ha, you fell down a flight of stairs. Oh, oh, you're okay. Oh, that was really funny, man. You're such an asshole, like trying to fall down an escalator while you're drunk versus, wow, this person just lost hundreds of millions of dollars or they just got canceled or they're going to jail. I mean, to me, one feels like a very innocent thing. And the other is like, oh, we're delighting in a person's life being ruined. But they kind of feel like they occupy the same space a little bit to me. There's a degree of severity, obviously, from one to the other. But mentally, I wonder if they're lighting up the same parts of the brain when we see both of those things. I'm very curious about that. The second thing is, I do want to echo what you said, Whitney, and also commend you on being so open and transparent about how you feel about these things. After that segment about the soccer fans and how they take pleasure in watching people fail, I thought, wow, I do this too. And I noticed, though, that I do it in very specific ways. To me, it's not as much watching like a YouTuber or an influencer or a celebrity have their lives melt down. To me, it's more like <laughs> my ex-girlfriends. I'm just going to say I have taken like a twisted amount of delight in hearing when an ex goes through a breakup. And like that their heart's broken, like especially if things ended, and I'll say this, if things ended badly between that person and I, and oh yeah, so-and-so, yeah, she broke up with blah, 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 and she's really, yeah, she's really fucked up about it. And honestly, my reaction in the past has been like, yeah, she deserves it. Good. I'm glad she's broken. Good. Like it's sick to even admit it, like a little bit, but just saying it out loud, I'm like, I have thought those thoughts. I've actually taken delight in knowing that the previous partners I've had are going through heartbreak. It's like, good, good. Now you know what it feels like. I hope it lasts. Like really nasty shit. But I think those thoughts and I have thought those thoughts more so about people in my life and previous partners than public figures. But I have felt it for public figures too. I mean, you brought up David Dobrik. There was a moment earlier this year, there's a musician, Mark Rebier, who's an improvisational musician, much like Reggie Watts, right? He has beats and he does loop. They call him the loop daddy. He's huge right now on YouTube and Instagram. Really fun stuff, like comedic improvised music. He was playing a slot at Lollapalooza in Chicago earlier this year. And he had an after party, I think, at the House of Blues in Chicago. And David Dobrik was trying to get in the sold out show and I guess found Mark Rebier's manager's phone number. And Mark Rebier posted on his social media the text thread with his manager, with David Dobrik trying to get in, be like, we love Mark. Can you just let us in through the back entrance, blah, 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 VIP. And Mark Rebier was like, fuck David Dobrik. Don't let him in. Fuck that guy. Like David Dobrik was trying to use his fame and his money to get into a sold out show. And this guy, Mark, was like, 
no, like eat shit and die. And I took so much delight in that, right? Because it was like, here's this like millionaire celebrity YouTuber trying to be like, yeah, I can get in. Like, I'm going to throw my weight around. And the artist was like, do not let this guy in. And part of it was, I think, my delight in that of how much privilege and how much advantage rich and famous people take in our society and to see them get shut down. I love it. I love it. Your money and your fame can't get you in here. Fuck off. I do. That was one thing to to back up. I was like, yes, this is amazing. It's so relatable, I think. And that was part of why that woman in, in the documentary called it the community of losers. Because in that context, Jason, you and I may feel like a loser because we feel inferior. So when we feel inferior, it feels good to see people who are superior to us fail because it puts us more at the same playing field. It makes us feel more like equals. And I think we desperately want to feel equal, but we don't. I mean, this is part of the reason many people are so frustrated with the percentages, as we've talked about, of wealth and how unequal we feel financially. And so it feels good to hate on someone like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or whoever else and just find all of their flaws, make fun of them, look for opportunities. I am sure there are people who spend all day, every day watching everything that Jeff Bezos does and looking for an opportunity to call him out. Can you believe blah, 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 right? There's this website that my mom reads called the Daily Mail, and she's obsessed with it. And I think she's probably obsessed because she finds pleasure in how the media tells these stories. It's also not far off from how we find pleasure in awful things. Like we talked about Gabby Petito. And I don't think we've brought it up since that episode, but it was really interesting because that episode just came out like within a week or so of this recording. Based on our recording schedule, our episodes come out a little farther or later on. But I listened back to part of that episode because, you know, I remember when we recorded it, Jason, her body had not been found. So we didn't really know what was going on. There was still hope that that she was still alive. And to listen back to it now, knowing that she is no longer alive was like a little creepy. And I also was reflecting on how at the time I was not that into that story, but like a day or two after we recorded that episode, I got really into that story and I found myself not obsessed with it, but like deeply interested in following it because I just wanted to know what was going to happen next. And it was like this weird experience because like that, what happens next is typically like how we feel when we watch a movie, when we read a book, but like wonder what happens next to somebody's real life and misfortune is disturbing, right? So it's similar in that sense of like using someone else's bad situation as a form of entertainment. But that's a collective experience. I don't think many people can say that they don't feel that way unless they're completely tuned out and they're like maybe very Buddhist. But I think that's part of how our brains function. And to your point, Jason, I'd love to like look further into the purpose that that serves. Another part of the documentary that I really liked is about halfway through, I think her name's Loretta Ross. And she's, uh, I believe, an activist, uh, especially for people of color. 
And she said, shaming isn't effective because it doesn't take into account humanity. It doesn't set up an opportunity for accountability. And that's part of why this documentary feels so important is for us to recognize our role in the shaming and really become aware of the fact that it's not actually making the change that we may hope it does. Because oftentimes on the surface level, call out culture and cancel culture and shame feel like a moral thing. Like, well, this person shouldn't be allowed to do this stuff. To your point, Jason, like, why does this guy's privilege allow him to do things that I can't do with less privilege? That's not fair. And thus we should call him out and we should make fun of him. We should publicly shame him. But it's not fully taking into account his humanity as a person. And it's not necessarily holding him accountable. It's just probably making him feel worse or resentful. But is it going to make him change? Probably not. And that's the thing that I feel more committed to. And I try to think a lot about beyond like putting myself in their shoes because I've been shamed. I've been publicly shamed in small ways, nothing major, but like YouTube is not a place that I feel good because a lot of people love to shame on YouTube. Shaming happens on Twitter. I have not experienced it there that I can recall. Thank goodness. We see it happen on a lot of different platforms, TikTok for sure. Any of these popular gathering spaces can be this collective experience of opportunities to shame one another. And Sometimes that's really scary, especially if you're a content creator. And we talked about this in a previous episode, that book, The Coddling of the American Mind, touches upon this, how important it is for us to feel comfortable making mistakes. And in this time of so much shame, it makes people terrified of making mistakes. So it's not really working to the advantage of this like correction thing. And I also know firsthand that like, Criticism does not work well for me. Constructive criticism, maybe, although the criticism angle still within that is hard for me. What works well for me is when somebody acknowledges what I've done well, the efforts that I'm making, and finds a very kind way to direct me in a better direction, right? So I imagine a lot of people function that way. And I also imagine that very few people will change because somebody has ridiculed them. They're probably less likely to change and more likely to just shrink away and never be heard from again. And is that the aim? Is that the hope that somebody will disappear and they'll stop doing the things that we don't like them doing? But that's like a weird form of manipulation and control. Don't you think? Especially as a rebel, Jason, I feel like your response to this would be super interesting. I feel it's ineffective because as Loretta said, the activist in the documentary, if we just go about canceling people, I feel we are not getting to the root of what we are actually enraged about. Like as an example, if we decide to cancel someone who we perceive as racist, It's not like that is going to make racism go away. The mentality of racism, the concept of racism, the worldview of being a racist. We've just simply tried to 
proverbially destroy a person's online presence. We're not actually destroying that person, okay? But we're destroying their ability to connect and communicate and share ideas in the open form of the internet and social media. But we're not actually solving racism, misogyny, inequality, speciesism, et cetera, et cetera, by like, fuck that person. We're going to like the angry mob is just going to descend and cancel that person. It doesn't eradicate any of those global issues. It's not giving that person a chance to reflect on, wow, maybe this deeply embedded belief system is actually something I don't want to follow anymore. Maybe there's a chance to, for lack of a better word, rehabilitate my worldview and start to embrace people of color, LGBTQ plus people, have a different relationship, a more compassionate relationship to animals and the environment. Whatever the case is, just fuck you, you're dead to me doesn't get rid of the problem. And I think people are under this impression that it does. It's kind of like to me, and this is a very nuanced conversation, so I'm going to try and explain it as simply as I can. We look at war on the planet. And in a previous episode, I mentioned some insane statistic that in the entire swath of human recorded history, there's been some minute amount of time that the world hasn't been at war. It's I can't remember what the statistic was. Remember when I mentioned that? We're at war a lot as human beings. It seems like we're constantly at war with each other. But this idea of we're going to destroy communism, we're going to destroy socialism, we're going to overthrow that dictator, we're going to blow up that junta. Like, Are people not noticing that the more we say that thing is evil, we need to destroy it and eradicate it, some new quote evil pops up somewhere in the world? Like we're going about this business as human beings, trying to kill things, trying to eradicate things that threaten us. We don't believe in it. That's wrong. But we end up inevitably either canceling or killing those people and more people just pop up in their place. Like war, killing, canceling is not fucking working, everyone, because it's not getting to the root of the issue. It's just they'll die. They'll go away. Someone's just going to take their place. Have we not fucking noticed this as humanity in thousands of years? Because that's what happens. That's where this awareness and education and understanding of history is so important. I'm amazed every time I read about the historical roots and context and patterns, because we can often think that this is like a temporary thing or a current thing, a trendy thing that we're only going through in this limited amount of time. But we tend to repeat ourselves over and over again, to your point with war, when you look at the whole context of it. And it's like, it's like the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over again without getting results. Like that kind of feels like that sort of thing. And, you know, I definitely have judgments too of the bystanders as well. That's why it's interesting to notice these things within myself, because when I see other people behaving that way, and oh, another example I want wanted to give is such a small one, but I was telling Jason, I think yesterday, how every time we post a video on YouTube, somebody gives it a thumbs down. And I was thinking about this the other day, how... I noticed like there was two views on our video at this specific time. We don't get a ton of views on YouTube at this point. But, you know, in the early stages, it'll just be like a handful of people watching. Two people had viewed our video and it already had a thumbs down. And it was within like a very short amount of time after I posted it. And I was like, 
Well, there you go. Clearly, I'm not 100% sure, but evidence is showing to me that this person is probably subscribed to our channel. And every time we post, they give it a thumbs down. And that's like the definition of of hate watching. Like, I don't like this person, so I'm going to follow them closely so I can immediately shame them by giving them a thumbs down or making fun of them. You're looking for that opportunity to drag someone in your own way. Now, giving a thumbs down on YouTube is a fairly innocent act, but I'm also willing to bet because I've spoken up about this a few times that thumbs downs on YouTube discourage me. I'm very sensitive to criticism. So every time I see a thumbs down, I feel upset. And I wouldn't be surprised, Jason, if this person knows that about me because they've heard me talk about it. And they know that one way that they can hurt me, one way that they can exert dominance and control over me is by giving me a thumbs down. But my part of this is to continue working on not caring quite as much, but also knowing that that's not going to stop me. And that's part of this too, is that I don't know if this person's objective is to give us so many thumbs downs that we stop our podcast and making our videos. Spoiler alert, we're not intending to do that. If we ever stop, it's not going to be because we got one thumbs down on a YouTube video, right? Like, I don't know if that's the intention of that act, or I don't know if it's the intention that they just feel out of control and helpless and frustrated and angry and resentful towards us or humanity in general, that they're just doing anything that they can to feel superior and to show their control. I'm willing to guess it's more of the latter, Jason. and. I invite that person, if they're watching or listening right now, and anybody else who does that to others, to your point, Jason, we can catch ourselves in those moments where we are hate following somebody, hate watching them, looking for opportunities to dislike something. I mean, we can do this in so many ways. It's not necessarily on social media. It can be seeing somebody in person. What is that person wearing today? How much weight have they gained? What have they done lately? Talking to our friends and gossiping and thinking and like, hey, can we dig up dirt on somebody? I find myself doing that. It's so tempting. So tempting. I did it like last week, Jason. I have this one friend and I just find myself wanting to talk to that friend about our mutual friend and like see what we can dig. And I'm like, every time thinking, why am I doing this? But I'm doing it because I get pleasure from it. And that's where the big question is, like, is it necessarily bad to get pleasure from someone's misfortunes? I guess it depends on your actions, you know, because then like I could go down this role of like beating myself up and trying to control myself and stop myself, force myself not to have pleasure. But if it's a human, like a typical common human urge, just because we've identified it and we perceive that as being bad or immoral does that mean we have to change it or can we just like quiet it and minimize it and catch ourselves and say like, all right, well, yes, Whitney, you're finding pleasure in somebody's misfortune. Let's move on to something better. That's how I practice this right now with my current understanding and tools is like, I just catch myself. It's similar to meditation and how you can catch yourself getting distracted, losing focus, thinking a lot of things, spiraling and just like, Take a breath and acknowledge yourself and say, all right, well, there is the thought. 
and not even judge it. Because I don't want to start catching myself and like in a way you can be a glutton for punishment and like, oh, wow, look how bad I am. And like, wouldn't that in itself become be like finding pleasure in your own misfortune? That's a whole nother exploration of maybe masochism, for lack of a better label, of you actually find some benefit in, and I think this is real, right? Some people identify with victimhood. Oh God, why do bad things always happen to me? No relationship ever works out. I should never try and create anything ever again because I failed at everything. There's so many tentacles to, I think, victim consciousness. But to your point, Whitney, if you identify probably as a child that you get sympathy from your misfortune, oh, wait, when things are going bad for me, I get attention. I get sympathy. I get, oh, it's okay, Jason. It's okay. No, no, no. No, it's okay. Everything's... I think in some ways there can be a perpetuation of misery in one's life. If you get something from it, you get pleasure in the form of attention, comfort, coddling. Then I think subconsciously you seek out detrimental situations because you know you're going to get attention, support, and coddling when you find yourself in a bad situation again. Totally. I think a lot of human beings, and myself included, if I look back on certain situations that maybe. I feel lonely. I don't feel like I'm getting enough sympathy here. I need to complain about it. Let me complain about it because I know when I complain, people will go, oh, it's okay, Jason. And look, we all need emotional comfort. I don't think there's any human being who can exist without some form of emotional or physical comfort. I think that's intrinsic to the way that we relate to each other as humans. But when we rely on seeking out the perpetuation and the cycle of bad situations so we get that comfort and that sympathy, that's something we really need to take a look at as human beings. And I say that myself included because I have done it. This is all to say, to I think go back to your question, Whitney, about whether or not it's even bad to find pleasure from people's misfortune. It's an interesting question because I know we talk about awareness so much on this podcast because awareness can lead to choices and choices can lead to different actions. But I wonder, say, when you find yourself in the situation of triangulation where you're talking to your friend about your other friend, or I find myself in a situation where I'm reveling in the misfortune of an ex-girlfriend or a previous partner, to have the mindfulness and the awareness to stop ourselves and maybe be aware of what we're doing. I've never done this in real time before of like, yeah, I feel really good. This person is suffering to say like, oh God, in terms of a pattern interrupt, this is going to be an interesting experiment to play with because it's so easy just to keep going with that feeling of, ah, we're equal now, or I'm superior to you now because you're suffering. And now you know what it feels like. Ha ha. Justice has been served. It's like, it's like we're almost obsessed with justice. And when we feel like life or the judicial system or the government or God is not doling out the justice we want, man, when life hands it out or social media hands it out, we're like, ah, yes, life is fair. The scales are balanced now. I think we are like, in a way, hardwired to want that. And whether it's good or it's bad, maybe it's important to just stop ourselves in the moment and say, do I really want to get pleasure from this thing? Because the reality is, Whitney, that pleasure doesn't last. 
It's not like the rest of my day is like, I'm walking on sunshine. The bitch got what she deserved. Like, that's not my feeling throughout the day. It's almost drug-like. You get the high from watching someone's pain, and then it goes away very quickly. So it's not like this is a sustainable form of happiness we're talking about. Like, I'm going to seek out people's pain because, man, do I feel good about it. It doesn't last. We know it doesn't last. So it is almost kind of like, I don't know if I want to put it in an addiction category, but it kind of feels that way, doesn't it? A little bit? Well, we're curious how you feel about this, as we always do. Whether you find yourself taking pleasure in other people's pain or misfortune, whether you find yourself looking to cancel people who are celebrities or influencers or influential people, it's always a safe forum here on This Might Get Uncomfortable for you to share your thoughts with us. And yeah, we want to know what's on your mind and your heart around shame and around the digital age. So you can always shoot Whitney and myself a direct email. It's hello at wellevator.com. That's also our website where you'll find the show notes for this episode, along with all of the books, the link to the documentary, everything we've mentioned today will be in the show notes at wellevator.com. And you can follow us on social media at wellevator is our handle on all of the major platforms. And if you really enjoy the content we're sharing around mental health, emotional wellness, societal connection, all the things that we cover here, you can support us on Patreon. We have a great number of wonderful patrons supporting us, not only this episode, not only this podcast, rather, but our second private podcast called This Hits the Spot, where we bring all of our favorite new products, services, and finds to live a healthy and well life. And if you haven't subscribed to our newsletter yet, you can do that at wellevator.com. We send out a weekly newsletter with our new blog posts and new resources for you to feel your best. With that being said, Whitney, this has been a juicy one. I feel like it was a little bit documentary exploration, a little bit confessional booth for both of us. So we've got some experiments. You know, next time we start to observe ourselves getting off on another person's failure or misfortune, it's a chance to pause and really take inventory of if that's really how we want to go about seeking our pleasure in life. I know I'm going to try and be much more mindful of that. So until next time, thank you for listening. Thanks for supporting the podcast in all of the ways. And we'll be back with another episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable. And as a reminder, every Monday are our solo episodes with Whitney and myself, and every Friday are special guests. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening and take care. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.